Has the exploitation of the black athlete been more than just economic? In a different category entirely from those the Black Economic Union seeks to assist is a man who is perhaps the most powerful and important black athlete, Bill Russell, player-coach of the Boston Celtics. Russell presently holds the highest position in sports held by a black man. Russell recognizes the exploitation, but sets limits on the nature of his commercialization. How has he viewed his experience as a player, as a coach, as a man? When you first sort of donned the role as coach and also player, uh, did you have any resistance from the members of the team, or, or what type of resistance did you have from either the press or members of the team? Well, the team uh, didn't resist. Uh, if they did, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I think the press uh, fought it in a sense. I think it was the first time I ever remember that a coach or a manager has been appointed and there was questions about his qualifications. You know, is he qualified? That's the first time. Now, there have been many managers in baseball. They change them about, or even in the National Basketball Association, the average coach lasts about two and a half years. And so a lot of them must have uh, some problems. Well, this is the first time I've heard as much discussion about qualifications, which irritated me to no end, because I knew it was strictly a racial thing, because uh, they hire coaches uh, every day that uh, no one says uh, publicly anyway, is he qualified, or that much discussion about what kind of coach you make. If you feel that it was on more or less racial, racial uh, tones, did you... Did you also feel that perhaps they, they felt that being uh, a black coach that you would be more sensitive to the black players? I don't know. They asked me questions like, could I coach without being prejudiced toward the white players? And all the years I've been playing, no one ever asked any coaches that I played for if they could coach without being prejudiced to black players. In fact, it never even come up. And this is, uh, we'll find out in the colleges all over the country that this is the case in a lot of cases that uh, coaches are prejudiced against the black players. But when I uh, took a job, it's, this is the first time I think with Ray's where the coach could coach objectively. But uh, really, since I'm such an egotist, that's what I call it, is, uh, it didn't bother me because I didn't care what they thought, really. And uh, those questions, I just said, well, okay, you ask your questions, I'm not going to worry about it. You, get to, you ask your questions, you get silly questions to the answer, and we get that over with, and I go about doing what I want to do. So it didn't bother me, uh, all this question. It irritated me a little bit, but uh, I forgot about it after the press conference was over. At the end of the day, when you're sitting reviewing your life, you have a lot of regrets as to how you should have, could have done things better. That could be almost anyone, but it's not. It's Bob Cousy. On the basketball court, it's hard to imagine how the Hall of Famer could have done much better. He was team captain for the first six Boston Celtics titles. But Cousy has been thinking a lot lately about his relationship with former teammate Bill Russell. I felt some guilt over not reaching out to him, and that's what I did eventually. We sit at his enormous dining room table and talk about his early days on the Celtics. His hands move like he's throwing passes to invisible teammates as he discusses his rookie year. Well, we had some talented players. We had some not-so-talented players. Cousy says that his fellow rookie, Chuck Cooper, was a five or six on a 10 scale, talent-wise. But Cooper was something else. Jackie Robinson broke the color line in baseball in 1947. Three years later, 
Uh, Owner Walla Brown got up at the meeting and said, the Salix laughed, Chuck Cooper from Duquesne. Cousy had no black friends growing up in a Manhattan tenement. He had no black teammates in high school or college. Now he was roommates with the first black player selected in the NBA draft. They went to movies, listened to jazz, and drank at bars. Their bond was tested on February 28, 1952, after a game in Raleigh. And he wasn't uh, allowed to register in a hotel with us. And Chuck and I somehow found out that there was a sleeper going through Raleigh that night at 12.30 to New York with a connection to Boston. Cousy and Cooper went to Union Station to wait for the sleeper train. We started drinking beer. And after three or four beers, it's like midnight, and we have to go whiz. They made their way to the restroom. Cousy was unprepared for what he saw. Stupid signs, big white signs with a black arrow, one pointing right, says colored, the other pointing left, says white. And I was stunned. I, didn't, I was ashamed to be white. I didn't know what to say to him. I said, come on, let's go out. We go out to the end of the platform, and we peed together. <laughs> Their friendship grew off the court and on it. Cooper was a good player, but Cousy, a point guard, was beginning to transform the league. The Celtics needed a big man to make it to the next level. In a trade after the 1956 draft, the Celtics acquired center Bill Russell. Russ changed the dynamic in every way. He was a fearsome shot blocker. He put a trauma on opposing shooters. And he was a great rebounder. An opponent would take a shot and miss, and there's Russell rising, rising, 6'10", long, lean, and springy, getting the rebound, and half-turning and snap-passing the outlet to Cousy. Russell and Cousy created a fast-break style that was nearly indefensible. These are, in many ways, the ultimate teammates. They were both murderously competitive and very quickly the Celtics emerged as a force to be reckoned with. Russell and Coos had a relatively tight relationship on the court. That's forward Satch Sanders. He joined the Celtics in 1960. They had a lot of respect for each other. That was clear. Off the court, they were not spending a lot of time in each other's company. Racial tensions were high in the U.S. That carried over into some NBA locker rooms. But Sanders says that wasn't the case with the Celtics. Cousy says Red Auerbach, who he alone called by his first name, Arnold, created clubhouse harmony in a rather unusual way. I think Arnold, frankly, solved the black-white situation pretty well. He treated everyone the same, badly. You know? So Russ and I's relationship was the same as any two people that are working towards a goal. The goal was to win championships. And with Russell, the Celtics began to do that. But something else was happening at the outset of the Celtics dynasty, Gary Pomerantz. Russell and Cousy were together for seven years as teammates. And if you put that on the civil rights timeline, it's roughly from the end of the Montgomery bus boycott to Dr. King's March on Washington Address in 1963. That is the heart of the black freedom struggle. And, and Russell would engage in that struggle in a way that few athletes did. On October 17, 1961, the Celtics played a preseason exhibition game in Lexington, Kentucky. Satch Sanders remembers what happened at the team hotel before the game. We had gone downstairs to eat, and uh, they said, well, we really can't serve you people. 
They weren't happy about it, and they gathered in Russell's room of the hotel. Russell and Sanders, along with Casey Jones and Sam Jones, decided not to play. And Red didn't want to turn away from a nice payday for the team. So he tried to convince the African-American Celtics to stay. And Russell said, we're going home. The white players gave it consideration, but in the end, they decided to play the game. Seven white Celtics played, including Bob Cousy, who didn't protest. I have no explanation for this feeling, as I do, about social justice, being a captain of the team. When Gary Pomerantz originally asked Cousy about the game, he said he didn't remember it. Cousy said, why did I play? What was I thinking? It was an exhibition game. Why didn't I say something? I think he was so focused on being Bob Cousy, some of the most essential American history of the second half of the century passed him by, went over his head. He was focused on winning. He was focused on his endorsements and his brand. And it just went by. Meanwhile, Bill Russell spoke more and more publicly about civil rights and the treatment of African-Americans. He called Boston a racist city. The press went to Russell for quotes, but... They didn't like him because he exuded arrogance, confidence, and all the other things that black guys should not have in a lot of estimations. In 1963, someone broke into Bill Russell's home, scrawled insults on the walls, and defecated in his bed. Russell wore his anger even more prominently on his sleeve. Russ was the ultimate angry black man. And I didn't blame him then, and I blame him even less now. Cousy says it pained him to watch African-Americans struggle for acceptance and inclusion. But he remained quiet. And Cousy says Russell's anger made it hard for them to form a friendship, like the ones Cousy had enjoyed with Chuck Cooper and some of his other black teammates. Let's go have a beer, let's go to the movie together, whatever, or socialize outside of the unit. I was a senior member. I had a good relationship with the media, I always have. So I could have reached out and perhaps shared his pain a little bit with him, you know. I never did that with us. Bob Cousy retired at the end of the 62-63 season after yet another successful title run. He and Russell had led the Celtics to six NBA championships in their seven seasons together. The Celtics gathered for a postseason dinner. And Bill Russell took to the podium to speak. And what Russell said was, you meet very few men in life like Bob Cousy. I consider Cousy like a brother. And Russell became emotional at this point. Cousy doesn't really remember that either. Obviously, this should have been special to me. When I read what he said, it brought back a slight memory, and it brought a tear to my eye, but uh, I don't know why I don't remember it more specifically, other than I'm 90 freaking years old. <laughs> That's something to do with it, you know. When I read these quotes to Cousy during an interview, Cousy just started shaking his head. He said, what was I thinking? Why didn't I get up and go across the room and give Russ a hug. In the fall of 1963, the Celtics became Bill Russell's team, unless that had happened much earlier. Russell retired as a player in 1969. After 13 seasons in the NBA, he had earned 11 championship rings. Cousy did a lot of thinking over three decades about how he'd fallen short as a team leader. 
but he didn't talk about it until a 2001 ESPN interview about Russell. And he was talking in a breezy way about Russell's extraordinary athleticism. But the topic shifted to race. Well, I should have been much more sensitive to Russell's anguish in those days. Uh, we talk... Uh... <laughs> and he just broke down sobbing. He, he buried his head in his hands on camera. A couple months later, Cousy attended a charity golf event in Florida. Russell, who had seen Cousy's ESPN interview, was there too. And Cousy had no idea what to expect. Russ and I, I always said over the years, had kind of a love-hate relationship. And he'd either kind of ignore me or glare at me. Or in this case, he ran over and threw his arms around me. And, and we talked about this first meaningful conversation we probably ever had in a relationship. And he basically said, Coos, whatever you might have done wouldn't have been helpful. He said what he had to do to make me feel better, I guess. And I appreciated that. And he hoped this conversation would lead to a higher ground in their relationship, a deeper friendship. But it really didn't. I thought about it for 15 to 16 years, and I wrote him a letter three years ago, pretty much doing a mea culpa. Cousy hand-wrote that letter. And I basically said, Russ, I know we've never been pen pals, and I'm sorry about that. It was my responsibility to reach out to you and hopefully share the pain that you had during that period or minimize it or whatever. However, I didn't do that. Sorry about that. And that was it. Well, then six months passed without a response, and then a year, and then two years, and then two and a half years later, in August of this year, 2018, Cousy got a call on a Sunday night at home. It was an old, somewhat enfeebled voice saying, Bob, it's Bill Russell. I'm calling to see how you are. They talked for about 10 or 12 minutes, according to Cousy, and then he asked the question, Russ, I sent you a letter a couple of years ago. Did you get it? And Bill Russell said, yes, I did. Thank you. Nothing more. Was Russell's response brief because he was angry? Not angry at all? Cousy wouldn't speculate. I asked him if Bill Russell's simple response of yes was sufficient. Yes, absolutely. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, November 10, 2022. So I have been told this is our eighth study session on the great William Felton X. Excuse me, William Felton Russell. I'm so accustomed to the Felton X racist joke, but the great William Felton Russell. Second Wind. This is our eighth study session in the Catherine Massey Book Club at the context of white supremacy. We are picking up kind of the early part of chapter six, Freedom. Uh, I will just go quickly because the book just continues to get better as we go. 
uh, the two audio segments that we heard at the beginning. The first, we heard Bill Russell uh, talking about some of the questions that he got when he was announced as the Boston Celtics player coach, which was his role for Pat the last three years of his NBA playing career, concluding in 1969 with back-to-back championships and his retirement uh, as coach player from the Celtics. But them saying, are you, are you qualified? Are you going to be bigoted, prejudiced against the white players? Then we transition, talk about tacky, to hearing old Bob Cousy, white man, suspected racist, still alive. And him talking about some of his different instances. I said, one, hey, if you had a black male, Chuck Cooper, who was here first and you all go out urinating together, delectable Negro homo eroticism. But you all go out urinating together way before Bill Russell even gets there. You already know this racism, white supremacy thing is a problem. They got signs up. You can't even go to the bathroom after you get some suds together. Oh, so this is a problem. You already know this when Bill Russell gets here and nope, I'm not even focused on that at all. But out of the many things, and I mean, for me, there are a few things in life more repulsive than a weeping white man. But he says, when I retire and we have our whole tacky ceremony and all the rest and Bill Russell gets up, and Bob Cousy's like a brother to me and all the rest. I don't even remember this I didn't go across the my black brother give your white brother a hug nope I you reading me the transcript from this event barely jogs my memory that right there tells me everything I need to know about Bob Cousy and even on the sly what it means to be white weeping Bob Cousy anywho we will go ahead and get to the spectacular William Felton Russell second wind the memoirs of an opinionated man co-authored by Taylor Branch suspected racist Notoriety doesn't always work in your favor. I've gotten out of many scrapes by being recognized, but I've gotten into just as many for the same reason. I regard my 20-year ordeal with autographs, for instance, as a struggle between notoriety and freedom. I always felt funny about autographs even as a recognized basketball player in college. At first, I didn't pay much attention to the feeling. I just signed my name because it was what everyone did. But in the early 1960s, I noticed that after a session of signing 50 or 60 autographs, I felt strange about it for two or three days as if I'd just come out from under an anesthetic and couldn't remember why I'd had an operation. It's hard to step back and look detachedly at the custom when you're in the middle of a crowd. I'd be surrounded by all kinds of people. Some of the kids were so innocent reaching up with their pencil and paper that it shook me. Others 
were little monsters out hunting scalps. They'd swarm from one player to another, never hesitating to complain if I didn't get to them fast enough. Women were usually shy and would manage to offer a compliment while I was signing. The men always made excuses. They didn't usually ask for autographs, they'd say, or that it was for their kids. They always seemed to need to say this as though it was humiliating to ask another man for an autograph. Typical autograph seekers are a mixture of shyness and rudeness. I've had them interrupt my meals in a restaurant by putting their pen and paper in my food, always by accident. It happens because they scuttle up to their target with their arms extended and their eyes turned aside. Nobody looks each other in the eye at an autograph session. It would be out of character. The process is like an assembly line, and I never had a single conversation while signing my name. I finally stopped the practice at about the time I quit smoking, and in the same way. I do things abruptly. I try to think them out in advance, but when I've made up my mind, I don't hesitate. When that first Surgeon General's report came out in 1964, I had been smoking for at least 15 years. As I recall, the report was to be formally issued on a Monday and on the preceding Friday, the newspapers carried stories that the Surgeon General would declare that smoking causes cancer and that each cigarette takes an average of seven minutes off your life expectancy. After reading this, I realized that nobody had ever explained it to me in that way before. When the report came out on Monday, I was already a non-smoker. I had quit over the weekend and haven't gone back since. Not long afterward, I also kicked autographs cold turkey and it didn't take long for the wrath of the sports world to descend on my head. My decision seemed to offend more people in Boston than anything I'd ever said about racism, which must be a sad commentary on something. One Boston writer launched a campaign in his column to have me fired from the Celtics because I was insulting the sovereign sports fans of Boston. People would come up to me on the street and snarl. You have to sign autographs. They'd say, that's the price you pay for being in the public eye. I wouldn't reply because I don't like hostile conversation. But I'd be thinking, wait a minute, who decided that's the price I must pay? 
somebody's trying to lay a decision on me arbitrarily without consulting me in an area that involves me personally. I don't have to put up with it unless I like being intimidated. Or strangers would say, not signing autographs, eh? Well, who do you think you are? As though signing autographs were an exercise in humility for celebrities administered by fans as therapy. In the autograph business, either the fans are prostrate and the stars are high and mighty or vice versa. There's no such thing as an even keel, which is why the whole exchange is phony. Sometimes I'd answer the people who call me uppity by saying, I don't think it matters to you who I think I am, but evidently it does matter who you think I am and if I deviate from what you think I should be, you get pissed. One year I was squirming for an alternative to autographs. I had some small posters printed up with a photograph and a quotation from something I once wrote. We learn to make a shell for ourselves when we are young and then spend the rest of our lives hoping for someone to reach inside that shell and touch us. Just touch us. Anything more than that would be too much for us to bear. Whenever I felt especially bad about not signing, I'd get the person's name and address and mail him or her a poster. It was a compromise, but I thought it was better than an autograph. I never signed for some people and not for others because I wanted to deal with the issue as a matter of principle. It is the same one I struggled to live by when I played basketball. To keep my life separate from the praise or rejection of the crowd. I didn't play for the cheers or the boos. I considered myself an artist who did something he loved, got satisfaction out of it, and took responsibility for it. With the Celtics, I tried to play so that at the end of each season, basketball and I would be even. Nobody would owe anybody anything. Each year, I gave my best because that's what anyone does who cares about a game and wants to win, and the fans always got their money's worth. In all my 13 years, I asked for only one no-cut contract to guarantee my place on the team. I didn't want to work anywhere I wasn't wanted. I leaned over backwards to make sure that there were no misunderstandings about what was due, and at the end of the season, I wanted everything to be square. 
the people who came to the games wouldn't owe me any money or testimonial dinners and I wouldn't owe them any exhibitions or autographs. The same would be true of the owners and the other Celtics. That way whatever happened between people apart from the game could develop freely. There are many fundamentally nice people who ask for autographs and want little more than a chance to express kindness toward me but in order to accept their kindness I would have to increase the risk of growing dependent on it. I'd also have to expose myself to people who dislike me and to violate my belief that there should be no glories or obligations imposed on people other than by their own choice. As I saw it, I had to make a choice between these people and me and I chose myself. It seemed to me the best way for me to be at peace with myself. Of course, there are still a lot of people who will insist that I'm supposed to sign autographs no matter how I rationalize it. But since they deny me free choice, they make it easy by reminding me that apart from all my abstract principles, autographs are usually a pain in the ass. Sometimes they create funny situations though. I was standing by myself in the Cleveland airport waiting for a flight, reading a newspaper, and keeping to myself. Suddenly, I became aware of a little round man staring up at me. Hi, Wilt, he said. I knew I was in trouble because the guy had an aggressive, know-it-all look to him. I didn't answer. I will, he repeated. His grin told me that he was going to needle me until I responded. He was like one of those kids who blows in the cat's ears. When I still didn't reply, he looked irritated. What's the matter, Wilt? Aren't you going to speak? My name's not Wilt. Yes, it is, he insisted, as if he was correcting me in school. I gave him my grade A glower, which has a big batch of smoldering Black Panther, a touch of Lord High Executioner, and angry Cyclops mixed together with just a dash of the old Sonny Liston. It usually works instantly, but not that day. For a minute or two, we fought each other to a draw with me glowering and him shaking his head up and down. Yes, it is, he said again as he finally drifted off. I knew I hadn't seen the last of him 
and about five minutes later he was back. Why didn't you tell me you were Bill Russell? He demanded angrily. You didn't ask. You could have saved me a lot of trouble. He complained, acting put upon. Then he took a long breath, shook his head from side to side at all his troubles, and reached into his pocket for a pen and paper. Sign this, he said. I don't sign autographs, I said. You what? He asked. For the first time, he was off balance. I don't sign autographs. You have to sign autographs, he sputtered. I'm part of the public. We made you, you know? This made me smile. The man was the closest I'd met to Central Casting's version of the tough, abrasive fan. Pardon me, sir, I said with a smile, but it seems that the next logical step here is for you to kick my ass. He stepped back. What do you mean? Well, I was just standing here, not saying anything, not bothering a single soul. Then you come along and start a conversation I don't enjoy. So, it seems to me that the next step is for you to kick my ass because if you're not going to, you may as well leave me alone. There have been hundreds like that man, but incidents don't always have sour endings. Once on a golf course, a middle-aged lady asked me for an autograph, and when I declined, she was upset until she had another thought. Well, would you mind if I introduced you to my dog? She asked. I said, of course not that I didn't mind meeting anybody, whereupon she formally introduced me by name to her dog and went off happy as a lark. I've noticed how often people are irritated when somebody else practices freedom. It upsets them and they fall all over themselves to stop someone from doing whatever it is that they don't like. They try intimidation. If this doesn't work, they'll use rules, laws, and even guns. I have seen this happen in sports all my life. It seems funny now, but in 1959, the NBA owners met to vote on a rule banning facial hair on the court. The reason was me. I'd grown a beard, not much of a one, but noticeable. Then Wilt grew one, and the league was faced with the first two 
hairy athletes in modern professional sports. The reaction couldn't have been any worse if we had taken up arson as a hobby. When Bill Walton broke into the NBA with the Portland Trailblazers 15 years later, his comments about J. Edgar Hoover caused a stir in the whole country. Walton criticized the FBI for illegal surveillance and harassment of him and for other things that have since been proven largely true. The FBI had a better image then and Walton's comments made a lot of people angry. They said he should shut up and play basketball. My impression of most of Walton's critics was that if you probed deep enough you'd find that their motivation was based on his half a million dollar salary and that he ought to shut up about the FBI and be grateful. That's saying that Walton's freedom to speak his mind has been bought which is nothing more than high-priced slavery. Intimidations come from every direction. When you're young and poor you're counseled to lay low because you can't afford to offend anybody. When you're successful you should ignore what offends you because otherwise you'll seem ungrateful. For a country built on individual freedom we sure are full of loopholes. Of course you'll find oddballs and bizarre doings wherever freedom is practiced. That's part of the idea. But to me most free acts are not really weird in themselves. What makes them appear strange is that free acts are always warped by the forces of conformity. Freedom is always under attack. It never travels alone but is always dodging rocks and barbs. Like most people, I've always had the urge to wander off the beaten path, but this went relatively unnoticed until sports put me in the public eye. Once that happened, it wasn't long before acts that seemed simple to me became so distorted by the public reaction that they seemed peculiar even to me. That's the way it was with my beard and with autographs and later that's the way it was when the Celtics retired my number. Red wanted to hang my shirt from the rafters of Boston Garden along with other Celtic immortals. I didn't like the idea at all. I figured I'd retired myself and my number could do whatever it wanted. To return to Boston and stand in the garden while the crowd cheered in nostalgia and a number was raised to the ceiling to make me a basketball immortal wasn't my notion of a good time and I didn't like it for the same reason I didn't like signing autographs for even the nicest people. Basketball was behind me. I knew what I had done better than anyone but it was private. 
to the extent that memories were shared it was with other players not with fans from my very first year I thought of myself as playing for the Celtics not for Boston the fans could do and think whatever they wanted if they liked what they saw fine if not the hell with it Bob Cousy's last year helped me to see things more clearly he had announced his retirement in advance and toward the end of the 1963 season we had an emotional farewell Bob Cousy night in every city around the league Cousy went through hell and the ceremonies didn't seem to have anything to do with the various ways he and the rest of us were trying to handle his retirement we were his friends and we didn't believe in funerals but to the crowds he might as well have been dying fans seem capable only of expressing and receiving the rawest emotions as I sat there watching Cousy go through all this I thought to myself I'll never go out that way so when the time came I kept my retirement plans a secret I knew I wouldn't be comfortable at a ceremony to retire my number either quite apart from the fact that such ceremonies seem a little tacky to me but red didn't see it that way and he kept calling me every few months to arrange a time for the ceremony usually he'd run a fast break on the phone joking talking hatching schemes and thumbing through his date book for a convenient date he has a persuasive way of looking ahead he likes to ask little questions that presume you agree with him on the big one so he kept trying to focus on the when question while I was stuck on the weather it's an old salesman's trick he known for years that I don't want any part of the ceremony but he's nothing if not persistent finally red got smart he learned that I had to be in Boston for an ABC telecast of a Celtic game in March 1972 the first time I'd been back to the garden he knew I couldn't get out of it so he planned a surprise ceremony hearing about his scheme I went straight to Red's office when I reached Boston from the way he was grinning he must have figured he had me trapped he looked like an unrepentant con man what's going on red I asked you know I don't want my number retired why are you pulling this relax he said the whole ceremony won't take more than a couple minutes you deserve it and I promise it won't hurt you should enjoy this Russ it's in your honor we've been over this I sighed red was still smiling 
I really don't want it and I've told you so for years. I can't imagine how you can feel you're honoring me by doing something that offends me and makes me uncomfortable. If you go ahead in spite of my wishes, it's got nothing to do with me. I have to go ahead, Red said. I've already retired those other guys' numbers, so it's only fair to retire yours. We had a problem. Red and I are both stubborn, and we might have embarrassed each other in public if we hadn't worked out a compromise. Finally, I agreed to the ceremony, and Red agreed to do it without a single fan present. We had our own little moment before the game, just read some of the Celtics I'd played with and me. With that crew, all the schmaltz was ruled out in favor of so much horseplay that we never could control ourselves long enough to pose for a serious picture. The next day, newspaper readers saw a bunch of cackling Celtics alone in a cavernous garden. A lot of people wrote in that Russell was being weird and outrageous again. Maybe so. I have tried to avoid intimidation in all kinds of situations, both trivial and important. I have a compulsion to be my own man, but I haven't always been a rock of Gibraltar about it. For example, when I became player coach of the Celtics, I discovered that I had acquired many new friends. One of the reasons they turned up was that I could get them tickets to the game. In the first round of the playoffs that year, when we were expected to win easily, I got loads of tickets. I asked a new golfing friend of mine if he wanted some and he refused them. But in the next round, when we were playing Wilt and the 76ers and tickets were at a premium, my golf buddy said he wanted nine tickets. It was too much trouble for him to come by for the tickets. He wanted them left at the press gate. So I took some extra time and saw to this. In fact, for the first playoff game against the 76ers, I had gotten 36 tickets for various new friends. Afterward, when I asked my golfing friend if the tickets were okay, he said they were all right, but that he didn't like having to sit next to another friend, so for the next home game, I switched seats around. The golf buddy said he wanted better seats a little closer than the rest of my friends, so I worked on that. By the end of the series, I was getting to the garden early because I had a whole game before the game making sure nobody was upset about where they were sitting. We lost that series. I can't blame it on all the sweat at the ticket office because the 76ers had a better team that year, but I did blame myself for being a chump. I didn't want those people to think I didn't like them or that it was any trouble for me to throw my weight around in the front office, so I invited myself 
to stand in line for them. It took the whole series before I woke up to see that intimidation is not always hostile. Often it comes from friends, people around you and close to you. I had tried not to trade on my athletic status to ingratiate myself with people or to wrangle favors, but I was right there playing the big star in the ticket office, helping those people attack what I wanted to stand for. Once Mahatma Gandhi said something like, it is not my aim to be consistent with what I have said, but to be consistent with the truth as it reveals itself to me. I agree with that remark. I have never been absolutely consistent about anything even though I've tried. But it was revealed to me that those people weren't going to get any more tickets to the playoffs and they never did. That time my vision was bad. I didn't see what was going on. But there have been other times when I saw my freedom being attacked and couldn't stop it. I opened a restaurant in Boston back in the early 1960s when the Celtics were at their peak and had hired contractors to do a complete remodeling job before the place opened. On the day work was finished, there were a dozen Boston city inspectors milling around the place and not a single part of my restaurant passed inspection. The fire inspectors wouldn't approve the countertops because they were made of a formica base. Everybody knows that formica won't burn, but it turned out that in those days the only surface that would pass inspection was made by a Boston company in which the fire inspectors had an interest. Other inspectors gave me similar excuses about the plumbing, wiring, and kitchen. Most of them were simply waiting for a payoff and there were other guys milling around who offered to take care of the payoffs if I gave them a payoff. I was a greenhorn about all this so it offended me and all the inspectors went home empty-handed. My friends tried to explain the facts of life to me but I wouldn't listen. Over the next few days I looked for an honest way out but I got nowhere so I wound up calling up some of the political big shots who had been friendly. Apparently the politicians made the inspectors phones ring because they filed back in one by one and approved my restaurant without a word. In order to win round one against corruption, I had to stoop to a little influence peddling of my own. Round two wasn't far off. Shortly after the restaurant opened, one of the policemen from the local station dropped by and insisted on seeing me. The captain sent me over here to get some food, he said. Good, I said cheerfully. Just give your order to one of the waitresses and she'll take care of you. When I walked away, the cop followed me, but I wasn't going to make it easy for him. He caught up with me and said, Look, this is for the guys down at the station. 
who work this area and the captain doesn't pay for it. Well, then he's not going to get it, I said. The cop looked more surprised than upset. You telling the captain no? He asked in disbelief. You got it, I said. Round two wasn't so hard. It was simply a matter of calling the bluff of the police who had built up a tradition that each local station got free meals at neighborhood restaurants. I didn't get any favors from the cops after that and they went out of their way to give my customers parking tickets, but they didn't threaten the business. Then came round three. My restaurant was packed almost all the time and we sold a lot of food and liquor but somehow the receipts always came up way short. It didn't take me long to notice this. Somebody was picking me clean and it didn't take much detective work to discover that it was mostly the bartenders and cashiers. The problem was easy to solve. I thought naively and I replaced a few people. Nothing changed. I watched like a hawk to find out how it was being done. Overflow crowds kept spending money every night, but every morning I hit bare metal in the till. The first hint that I was over my head came to me when I started losing money. The next one came when a rich, street-tough black dude came to see me. He said he'd heard I was having trouble and wanted to give me some advice about how to handle sticky-fingered employees. Some people he knew had caught a bartender stealing money and had taken him out back and broken his leg with a baseball bat. Then, while the guy was lying there on the ground, they gave him money for cab fare, told him to go to the hospital and get himself fixed up charge the medical bills to the restaurant, rest a while, and come on back to work when he felt like it. After that, the folks running the restaurant didn't have any more trouble with bartenders. As this story unfolded, I decided that I was in the wrong line of work. Quickly, my restaurant was up for sale. Corruption had KO'd me in the third round. I'm not a crusader who wants to stomp out evil everywhere, but I do take it as a duty to defend the freedoms that exist within our society, especially my own. All corruption is an attack on people's freedom, but so are many other aspects of life today. For example, inflation seems to me a form of corruption. So many people go to work in the morning already gritting their teeth that I know they can't be taking pride or joy in their work. Something tells me those people are doing shoddy work while conspiring half the time to impose a price increase on somebody else. You may be able to duck the forces that attack freedom 
for a while and get away with it the way I did with my restaurant. You may even be part of such forces and not know it, but sooner or later they are going to attack you. When I was growing up, Mr. Charlie used to talk to me about the killer tiger on the loose. If I saw that tiger attacking somebody else, he said, and I stood by because it wasn't me, I had no right to complain when the tiger got hungry for my hide. The tiger didn't care who it was biting. It would get around to everybody sooner or later. It's in your enlightened self-interest to help keep the tiger off others. When I was young, we had the pushers in the slums selling heroin and marijuana. By the time I was a little older, the pushers were in the suburbs and penthouses. It took about 20 years, but it happened. In the Watts riot of 1965, the National Guard shot down blacks in the ghetto, and in 1970, the Guard was shooting white college kids at Kent State. It only took five years. The forces against freedom always spread, but whites don't see that the same force that attacks blacks will one day turn on them. Those same forces spread out over the globe and then boomerang. When all the testimony came out about what our country had done to the Allende government in Chile, I had a sinking feeling that we had let loose something that was too nasty to stay abroad. As I see it, Nixon and Kissinger said, there's a danger of communism in Chile and the Chileans are acting like kids. They don't know what's good for them, so to hell with their elections and constitution. We'll straighten them out. Nixon and Kissinger decided that the Chileans would be better off with a right-wing dictatorship than a left-wing democracy. I wonder how long it will take for this approach to return home. How long before somebody in power says the average television show appeals to the mentality of a 12-year-old? What do the voters know about anything? We've got to take over and run things right. Maybe it's already started happening. What they did in Chile to promote democracy is incompatible with everything I've learned since I was a little boy. Ideas are like the wind. They're free. You can't really impose an idea like democracy on people in the first place because that's not the nature of ideas. You may think you're promoting a better idea, but what you are really imposing is yourself. You can lay guns, bulldozers, and bribes on a country until you have it in your power. And then you can claim that its people like your ideas. But the intimidation came first, and it really doesn't have anything to do with ideas. The best way to promote an idea is to simply let it circulate. If word spreads, 
that it's a good one, you won't have to bully anybody, they'll come to you. In fact, if the idea is good enough, they'll be trying to sneak in your house to steal it. Nixon's and Kissinger's attitude about the Chilean people is a common one in this country. We tend to look upon everybody around the globe as children trying to play like grown-ups. We feel that we're sober and responsible whereas everybody else is acting silly in front of the mirror. This attitude is a road map to grief. It's the way we thought of the Vietnamese and the way many whites thought of blacks for hundreds of years. Even today, what most whites write about blacks has the undercurrent of the child-rearing parent. Whenever I sense someone speaking about somebody else with a parental attitude, I figure somebody's freedom is about to be attacked. It doesn't matter whether they're kind or stern parents. The parental mindset paves the way for them to deny somebody else's rights. The attitude is convenient because it's a way for people to soothe their consciences about not treating others equally. It was true of all colonialists from the Romans to the British. It was true of Nixon and Kissinger in Chile. And it was even true of the man who wanted me to advertise his baby powder. In a similar vein, I worry when I hear people crusading in the name of their kids. The most explosive social issues in recent years, such as abortion, pornography, and busing, have been debated according to their impact on kids, or at least what people claim will be their impact on kids. I can handle pornography myself, you'll hear the parents say, but I don't want my kid exposed to it. That's the voice of someone who's about to attack somebody else's freedom. People have persecuted homosexuals for eons in the name of God and kids. Homosexuals, it's claimed, are vampires who replenish their ranks by preying on youth. We have to protect our children, is the cry. But homosexuals are our children, and we should treat them so. As adults, they deserve the full respect given heterosexuals. I have my own fears and insecurities about sex, but I don't think it's my right to impose them on the world or to hide things from my children. I have too much respect for them to do so. My duty to them is to love them and to help them interpret the world so that they will be able to make free choices and act on them. I worry a great deal about my children, but the best medicine for those worries is in their strength and independence, not in their ignorance. When people are angry or afraid, they tend to rally around an institution for protection, the flag, the army, or the church 
for example. Or if they feel a recession coming, they'll huddle inside their company. This is natural, but at these times such people are the least free. They don't think much, don't take much responsibility, and become drones. I have said that I could never identify with Thomas Jefferson and the other founding fathers because most of them were slaveholders. Still, I can appreciate the fact that they revolted against the major institution they knew, the European state, and also fought a rear guard action against the European church. They were on their own. What institutions they had were largely built by them and they respected themselves and each other at least as much as they respected any institution. I admire that. These days, many people are so emotionally involved with their institutions that they don't even see them for what they are. The Basketball Hall of Fame is an institution of sorts. Its first members were selected in 1959 when I was already playing professional basketball, so I am its contemporary and an observer of its creation. Fifteen years later, the Hall's selection committee chose me as the first individual black player. When my selection was announced, I issued a statement saying that for personal reasons, I preferred not to be inducted. I said I had no quarrel with the Hall. I simply did not wish to be a part of it would not consider myself a member under any circumstances. I did not explain the reasons for my decision. To most people, the Hall of Fame is the ultimate in sports. It's like athletes heaven, something you dream of and strive for throughout your career. If you are good enough and lucky enough to rank with the immortals, you are enshrined into the Hall of Fame. To many fans, the very mention of the Hall sets off tremors of awe and players themselves are subdued about it. There's so much sentiment surrounding the institution, it's unheard of to refuse when the angels come to carry you off to glory. So the sports writers jumped all over me. To many of them it was blasphemy of the highest order. From all over the country they called and challenged me to explain. All I would say was that my reasons were personal which didn't stop the writers. A couple of them simply guessed at my motives and then tried to discredit them. One writer was more straightforward. He wrote that he didn't know what my reasons could be, but whatever they were, they stank. The fans took up where the writers left off. 
a lot of them sent me letters that looked as if they were written by a nasty six-year-old with misspelled words calling me a Jew and a nigger in the same sentence. On a higher level, a bank president from Ohio wrote to tell me that I owed him and the whole country an explanation. Most of these fans and writers assumed that I think the Hall of Fame is racist. I do. But there's more to it than that. If I refused to have anything to do with every American institution that I thought racist, I'd be leading a hermit's life. Context of White Supremacy so we will pick up the great Bill Russell second wind uh, we did not finish with the chapter so we'll pick up what it came down to was that I thought was that I thought of the Hall of Fame in the same way that I thought about autographs that's the uh, sentence in the chapter freedom where we will resume Catherine Massey book club context of white supremacy the number 605-313-5164 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate the number again six one five three one three five four six four five one six four I'm sorry five one six four and the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, people were having difficulties Gus T included uh, in dialing uh, the other number to dial in ring the program I've been having difficulties uh, using that number for some time so giving out the other number folks can try that one out <clears throat> uh, and make sure that you know you can dial in if you have commentary to share again 605-313-5164 the code Five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate. <clears throat> Email until justice at gmail dot com. Let us see before we get to some of the folks who dialed in with commentary. Man, oh man. The timeliness of Mr. Russell in so many ways. He had the segment where he talked about him going cold turkey right at Thanksgiving time too. Metaphor. Uh, going cold turkey with autographs and cigarette smoking. And he credits the Surgeon General's 1964 report and the impact that that had on him. I was not alive at this point. So go back and check. And I said the timing. California. They just uh, in the whole state of California, election time, 
no more flavored tobacco products this includes our favorite new or menthol flavored cigarettes which were made specifically to target black people like Bill Russell but I went to check this is from the Harvard Health blog harvard.edu Surgeon General's 1964 report making smoking history on a Saturday morning 50 years ago tomorrow Surgeon General Luther Terry made a bold announcement to a room full of reporters cigarette smoking causes lung cancer and probably heart disease and the government should do something about it I vividly remember hearing the Surgeon General's report on the CBS Evening News at the time I was a first-year medical student between two-thirds and three-quarters of my fellow students were smokers Wow! by the time we graduated only 10 percent remained smokers the report was one big reason why the impact of the report was augmented by our experience dissecting cadavers the lungs of non-smokers were pink the lungs of heavy smokers were black that didn't look healthy and the Surgeon General confirmed that it wasn't I also remember the impression the report had on my mother who had been smoking for many years she wasn't wowed by the science or the weight of the evidence instead she was impressed by the fact that America's top doctor was advising her and others like her to stop smoking she didn't follow his advice right away but eventually did I found this interesting for many reasons uh, even just thinking about that and the the impact that smoking has had uh, the system of white supremacy black people specifically as I said they just that's been in and of itself just about 20 30 years of effort to get menthol cigarettes banned and this wasn't nationwide this was just the state of California no flavored tobacco products but the whole can we talked about that Valerie Yerger whole campaign to get black males generations of black people period like Bill Russell Cools, Newport talked about all that and did sobriety would be best Number is 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you have commentary, the great Bill Russell. Uh, Folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Greetings, everyone. Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, uh, smoking. Uh, uh, yeah, but uh, the uh, idea of smoking, uh, I can recall as a child and as a teenager and even uh on the fire department, uh, it was, uh, you know, pretty well, uh, 
very popular. Uh, one thing I couldn't stand with the fire department being that it's a job that you ate with people. You ate meals with people and you're sitting right across the table with someone or sleeping next to someone who is smoking. You know, I couldn't stand it. I was glad when uh, finally, I think it was something like the 90s or the 80s, late 80s, where they uh, ruled it totally out of the fire stations. So the smokers would have had to would have had to go into the truck bay or outside to smoke, as far as they're concerned. Uh, and uh, I uh, admire Mr. Russell to be able to uh, suddenly stop doing uh, smoking. Uh, two of the most important people in my life, my my mom. Uh, I, I never saw her smoke, but she. She uh, would smoke one cigarette a day uh, before she went to bed. And she stopped that a long time ago. My father stopped smoking cigars when he joined the Nation of Islam. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't pick up any habits because I didn't see it a whole lot. As far as that, it helped me make decisions later on. So I didn't pick up that habit. A lot of people pick it up because it was something popular. It made you, you know, uh, some sort of status or something like that if you did that. Uh, autographs. Once again, I, I really admire Mr. Russell for doing that, especially how difficult it would be upon the professional level, especially with white people in in regards to black males they have the attitude that a black male should be grateful that we allowed him to play professional sports and make more money than i make and because white people then and still now really resent the idea of black males making more money than they do for playing a sport you know, as far as that concerned, and if you are not uh, uh, honorable to them in some sort of way, any, uh, any type of way, they they take offense. They would come out in the open now and and, uh, <clears throat> and openly criticize criticize you for doing so. Uh, but he was uh, determined that he was going to uh, not allow uh, white people or anybody actually to compromise his uh, train of thought. And that, that takes a, a lot of determination and discipline to be able to do that and maintain that. Especially from the stand, also to have a code to be prepared to say something if it's necessary to that person or persons. Uh, Hall of Fame, basically the same thing. Uh, this he he ne it, 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 from reading it from reading about him, it never uh, uh, was a situation to whereas he uh, would take out of context. You know, it's a, it's a game that he liked, and it's, although it's it's a 
it's something he like. It's it's a game. It doesn't mean everything as far as that concern and uh and the whole idea of, of Hall of Fame was something basically for others, not not himself. And uh I I kinda like that, you know, as far as that concern. Uh there's a few athletes that have a similar situation, but we're not talking about them tonight. We're talking about Mr. Russell. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up, if you have commentary to share, proceed. May I be heard? Lauren, yes, ma'am. Hello. Um, on page 201, it said, when you're young and poor, you're counseled to lay low because you can't afford to offend anybody. And when you're successful, you should ignore what offends you because otherwise you'll seem ungrateful. For a country built on individual freedom, we sure are full of loopholes. <clears throat> Um, I think what he's saying about black people uh, talking about racism seems accurate to me. And I think we're supposed to be quiet when it comes to that. All of us people classified as non-white, especially black. Don't talk about racism, especially in an honest and accurate manner. And if you do, you'll get in trouble. Um, at the end of that, he said, for a country built on individual freedom, we sure are full of loopholes. Full of loopholes is a metaphor, um, region Q, but had Mr. Russell described the situation in plain language, it would have been obvious. Um, white people can think, say, and do whatever it is that they want. The situation is not the same for non-white people. And it's not a loophole, it's just racism, white supremacy. Um, on page 204, um, it said, Gandhi said, it is not my aim to be consistent with what I have said, but to be consistent with the truth as it reveals itself to me. That was an interesting statement to me. And if a person thinks that, it might help them uh, from just thinking and saying things because they thought them and said them before. It might lead to um, critical thought and uh, people thinking in a different manner than the way they used to. Um, I also like the part when he was talking about Mr. Charlie, um, talking about the tiger, and it's in your enlightened self-interest to keep the tiger off others. You know, I just thought to myself, no person should be mistreated. And, and when you see somebody else being mistreated or being harmed, you should try to stop that. Again, that kind of thought and action is not encouraged in a system of white supremacy. Um, 
Also, back to when he was saying about being young and poor, and, let me see. We sure are full of loopholes. That part in this book, I've noticed um, we is used a lot. And when he says we, it's like um, Mr. Russell and even other people, um, when he was on the plane with a black male who was in the service and he kept saying things like, we have to help Vietnam stop communism. And if it gets bad enough and the Russians come in, we'll have to take over and run those government governments for them until they straighten up. A lot of usage of the word we, um, but meaning white people, him and white people, or non-white people and white people, when, I just don't think it's accurate. So I noticed that, I'd say, more than five times um, in the book. So I just wanted to point that out. I've been meaning to say it, and that's all I have for right now. Much obliged, Lauren. Uh, let us see. I'll read a few of my notes and have our emails and what have you and keep monitor the switchboard, see if other folks have thoughts to share before we get to the second audio segment. Uh, so scrolling back, my notes from this week, the chapter Freedom, so timely, Mr. Russell, my goodness. So last week, we leave off with him <clears throat> getting all these different stops that he's had by enforcement officials. Um, even that's something to think about. I think I mentioned this last week again, like meh, we've heard a lot, right? Mr. Russell's book, uh, counter violence, grandfather, his father, uh, himself saying that he was not about nonviolence. He was going to be lynched as a child through a rock at a white man, uh, the library book, slavery is the best thing that happened to black people. I mean, he has a lot of anecdotes. This white guy, you got to sell this baby powder. You know, I mean, he's got a ton of different examples of white supremacy, racism throughout the book in a variety of different ways. That is, I mean, anybody here, you can think if you're listening live archives, myself, how in the world racists break in your residence spray graffiti nigra on your property defecate in your bed and apparently you write two different memoirs about this during the decade when this happened or during the 20 year period when this happened and don't discuss it at all just something that I don't did white people tell him not to include that? Maybe I don't. That's just one to think about. I think I would have to, that would at least have to be a foot. So that's two footnotes. <laughs> We'd have to get a footnote about that lynching accurate information. Now that we can go research and white people aren't going to fuss at us for talking about racism. Heard that twice. And then, oh yes, PS, they did uh, leave feces in my bed. The end. Notes for this week. Uh, let's see. He talks about the autographs at the bottom of 196 and he says some of the kids were so innocent reaching up with their pencil and paper that it shook me. Others were little monsters. 
out hunting scalps. What a metaphor. And I don't know. I'm going to think he might have been talking about quite a few white children. Little monsters. Give me your autograph. Get over here, Negro. Particularly if I have heard and seen my parents. Got this Negro on our team. I can't believe it. Supposed to be the white man's team. What are you doing? They've heard that. Yelling and throwing things. They're mad about him being here anyway. Then, oh yeah. Nigger, you better sign that. Get over here. Nigger, sign my pad. Hurry up, quicker. That's about what I would expect. Maybe even now. Uh, let's see. Already read from the Surgeon General's report. Bravo for him getting rid of the smoking. Uh, let's see. He said his decision to uh, to not do autographs seemed to offend more people in Boston than anything I'd ever said about racism. Now that's one. I think it's one and the same. Isn't that what they said in the Pro files that that was a part of it? We got this nigger. He's not signing autographs, calling white children monsters, hanging out in Mississippi. Charles Evers and Charles Evers at the March on Washington. Like, oh, yeah, this guy, you know, he's a troublemaker, been a troublemaker going overseas to the continent. Uh Then, like I said, it's really one in the same. Also, even to think about that, like, wow, uppity nigger at this time. Eh, I'm not signing that. (laughs) Just a black person at this time. No. White person tells you to do something. No. What? <laughs> what that the uh, Planet of the Apes films that came out at this very moment, 1964. That's when the book came out. Lest my memory is bad, that all that is based on. That is a big part in the franchise when the apes learn the ability to talk and then to refuse. That's a big scene. The apes know, and then they start killing white people. Uh, let's see. I love the whole scene about this little white fellow that comes up and thinks that he is Wilt Chamberlain. This is very, very common. Uh, I've heard this from many, many uh, black entertainers, black athletes, where, you know, you're just some tall black fella, you know, you're whomever. And I mean, they can just mess it all kinds of ways up. That is, you know, super, super popular. Uh, Let's see. Incidentally, I just, as I was doing my research this week, Bill Walton, when he was doing his broadcasting career after he retired as a player, there is a famous segment where they were doing a live television broadcast and he was doing covering the game on television. I don't know if it was live back then. They had a lot of tape delay, so it may not have been live. It certainly was not a live audience the way it would be today. But anyway, they're doing the game. He's covering it for TV. He's with a white anchor, Rick Barry, a white man. He's in the Hall of Fame. His children played in the NBA. Uh, his this uh, Rick Barry refers to a basketball player and says, look at him running around with that watermelon grin. This is like a famous moment that happened about 50 years ago where they reference it. But I might even have to play it next week just to see how Bill Russell. And I mean, so we've read his book to see how he handled this exchange with a white man live on air talking. I forgot the black player of the game that they were talking about, but I wasn't alive then. So I mean, yeah, but uh, yeah, to see all of this 
or to hear well, both because they have the video so you can see and hear all of this but this is an infamous moment to hear how he responded continuing uh, I think before we heard Bill Walton mentioned white man Hall of Fame played for the Celtics and won a championship with the Portland Trailblazers right down south three hours from Gus T uh, we heard him his name mentioned before in saying that he rejected the title of the white hope to rescue the league from all of these, you know, big black dudes uh, in the 70s. And people said, how do we know that? I think one of the folks who dialed in said, how do we know that? How does he know this information that Bill Walton, what he thought about all this? And I said, well, Bill Walton played for the Celtics. So he probably, uh, he and Bill Walton probably, you know, spent quite a bit of time together, talked and all the rest of it. Then we have him come up again where I thought that uh, he talks about all this. I said, plus Bill Walton kind of has a reputation as being one of those so-called hippie white people from that era he was at UCLA uh, Berkeley California during the late 1960s and uh, one of those so he'd have been refined race soldier wow such a cool white person that's the way people would have thought of Bill or that's the way people did think of and talk about Bill Russell or excuse me Bill Walton white man at that time Uh, and then for him to be coming out and criticizing J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI like whoa that is a who is this white like you are almost on the verge of getting in trouble as a white man to be running around and saying this publicly uh, about J. Edgar Hoover like whoa we we'll have to have a talk with you buddy get your act together uh, let's see they do the whole retirement which is unheard of to me uh, having an athlete uh, especially an athlete who won a championship, much less 11 for a franchise and was like the best player in doing it uh, to have a private ceremony. I mean, it would be every fan in the state would come and, you know, bring you treasures and gifts forever and wail and cry and cheer and play every highlight. And, you know, it might be a whole weekend affair, make a party out of it. Uh, they have Kobe Bryant Day in L.A. I mean, you, you know, have seen this or maybe have where? Yeah, you have. That's recent. Kobe Bryant. They did that before he died. He was able to live and see that Kobe Bryant Day every August 24th in Los Angeles. The whole state gets into it, especially now. Uh, let's see. All of this where he talks about his uh, business and how I'm losing money or even before he gets to all of that. And he talks about. Man, we talk about neutralizing workplace racism all the time. You're going to be an entrepreneur. I'm self-employed. I'm going to open up my business, whatever it is. I don't have to deal with Whitey. Well, probably will need a license. He said he was selling liquor. You're definitely going to need a liquor license. You're going to be in business. You're trying to sell food and all that. Oh, health inspector too. Yep. Have to come and talk to us. Oh, yeah whole lot of white people it's not going to be black Bostonians black gangsters and thugs that Detroit Red told us about when we read the autobiography of Malcolm X that's not who's going to be in charge of the liquor license in Boston then or now I don't think graft haven't we heard that term before you got to do some grafting got to pay all these people so that I can open up my business health inspectors, all the rest of it, fire inspector, retired fire. He's never told us about that. He's been holding out, you know, uh, grafting and holding people up, shaking them down. Nah, that, that, nah, we're not going to prove this one. You got to, you know, fatten our pockets up. We're trying to go to the Dolphins game, and, you know, we're going to need a little bit more of a payoff on this one. Uh, let's see. 
got uh then the, and the police get on this he says it, the, the fire department all the rest police come in and once he gets the place up and rolling hey cap says we're coming down to get food and we don't pay for it you just fill us up you feed us for free that's the way it works isn't that the godfather mccluskey comes in and smacks michael at the at the uh, hospital we got mccluskey catholic irish catholic right there i mean godfather is everything but you know, all of this corruption and what have you dang this is what it's gonna take for me to be in business and it's not even they didn't just come in and say hey let me get a police officer's discount you know blue shield 50 percent off 25 percent no 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 we for free that's what captain says let's see Oh, and then the black people come in and say, hey, we know how to deal with folks stealing. You know, we take them out and beat them down and send them to the hospital. Like, really? Is this what you all do to the uh, firefighters, corrupt fire officials when it's time to get that inspection? Is this what you do to the police officers or this is what you do to the black person who stole twenty dollars out of the register? Hmm. Let's see. So when I was young, we had the pushers in the slums selling heroin and marijuana. By the time I was a little older, the pushers were in the suburbs and penthouses. Pause. Individuals classified as white control all of that. And I think we heard about that, too, in previously mentioned the autobiography of Malcolm X. But even when Detroit Red and the rest of his Negro West Indian Archie, the rest of his Negro uh, Negro hoodlum friends, even when they are allowed to sell all the grass and weed that they want and peddle black females, heard about that too. White people are in charge of that. Godfather too, whether that's payoffs, we allow it, we bust you when we want or whatever. We get free services, all of the above. We control where it's going to be allowed to be at. Anywho, uh, let's see. When I was a little older, the pushers were in the suburbs and penthouses. They were there already. And or they just, yeah. Uh, it took about 20 years, but it happened. In the Watts riots of 1965, the National Guard shot down blacks in the ghetto. And in 1970, the Guard was shooting white college kids in Kent State. We just talked about Jackson State. The important difference is black people get shot down all the time white college students do not get shot down all the time that's why they talk about Kent State all the time they do not talk about Jackson State hardly at all even with the water crisis they don't talk about Jackson State water crisis right now in Mississippi they don't because black people get shot down all the time so that's why white people, they are not concerned. These same forces, so-called, no, they're not coming after us. In fact, white people, we, they are the force. We are the ones in Watts or wherever you all are, Monroe, Louisiana. We're the ones beating you, killing you, putting the narcotics there and making things miserable for us. Negras. Let's see.
some may say all of this about the average television show appeals to the mentality of a 12 year old reading more important than watching TV and they might even say hey we've had you know years of that now and people are all ignorant and uneducated they don't read voluntarily like yeah they shouldn't be in charge of anything hmm. uh, let's see all of this about promoting right wing uh, whatever government or left wing democracy we are in a system of white supremacy racism those analogies of right wing and left wing whatever that means and then democracy there is no such thing in existence either we have a system of white supremacy racism or we do not call things by their proper names uh, let's see we oh it popped up in so many ways uh, in, in this book to uh, this week especially uh, he says Nixon's and Kissinger's attitude uh, Henry Kissinger won a Nobel Peace Prize by the way uh, attitude about the Chilean people is a common one in this country we tend to look at everybody around the globe as children trying to play like grown-ups that is true but that is not we that's one again being more accurate individuals classified as white look not 10 look upon everybody around the globe classified as not white as children trying to play like grown-ups perfect perfect timeless you see that rampant throughout the boys and gals exactly what Dr. Welsing said boys and gals yep that's exactly how they see us how they treat us how they talk about us when they're not calling us blue gum monkeys let's see and it just goes on we uh, and talking about uh, let's see and then he even he gets to that at the end of that paragraph because he said this attitude is a roadmap to grief it is the way we thought of the Vietnamese wrong because Muhammad Ali me we isn't that his poem I think the great but Muhammad Ali he said no 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 Viet Cong they never called me nigger no sir Bill Russell knows something about that right so he knows no we did not think of the Vietnamese that way individuals classified as white thought of the Vietnamese that way three times Minister Malcolm has a whole section where he talks about that he said the insanity he said the same thing not the collective we pronoun but the our possessive plural our he said I heard a black person the other day who was so insane they said our astronauts remember that one he said they wouldn't even let us near the facility where the launch is going to happen and talking about our astronauts come on he says in the way many whites there we go thought about blacks for hundreds of years even today what most whites write about blacks has the undercurrent of the child rearing parent undercurrent that's a because they say that undercurrent undertones they use that metaphor what is that one one <laughs> what does that mean uh, let's see and that showed the prevalence because this was published in 1979 so for 50 years it's not white people write in a racist manner or they write conveying racist white supremacist attitudes it's an undercurrent under racial undertones under what under who 
let's see, he says, the attitude is convenient because it's a way for people to soothe their conscience about not treating others equally. It was all true of the, it was true of all the colonialists, racist white supremacists, including the recently deceased queen from the Romans to the British, the queen. It was the, it was true of Nixon and Kissinger. Again, Henry Kissinger won a peace prize. Like, well, I won't say so many, but a number of people pointed that out. Like, really? Henry peace prize? Anyway, uh, and it was true of the man who offered me the baby powder. Yes. Uh, when he talks about uh, freedom, saying that freedom is not free and that, hey, you've made a lot of money, that that'll be their justification. Like he was saying that for Bill Walton. That is so common. You hear that all the time. Uh, you hear that, uh, say that about LeBron James and even people who are not billionaires, they will say that, you know, that, hey, you've been allowed to get this job, make 50 cents, you know, you ought to be happy. Shut up, be happy, count your blessings. They will like, wait a minute. And exactly as he said, now, when I didn't have anything, it was, you know, hey, be quiet, pay your dues, you can get there. And then once you get there, now I still got to shut up and be quiet so that I don't look like dang at what point where where would I be allowed to safely articulate my views or whatever it is like come on come on like that is so kind of system of white supremacy racism again that's why we don't have a democracy and all the rest of it system of white supremacy uh, let's see oh when he talks about the hall of fame I lo- oh he had two one where he talked about the rules, the same section we talked about the money. I cannot wait to see if I can invest 30 minutes to find where they talked about no Negra facial hair in the NBA. Did you hear that? It is 2022 and we're talking Crown Act and all of this that in the 1950s and 60s, white people, because of Bill Russell, they didn't even have that many black males in the NBA at that time because of two black males with a little bit of facial hair uh, 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 we got that uh, we 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 shouldn't allow them here anyway uh we, we got to put rules on that negro facial got to put rules they got the lip beard and everything got to put rules on that what i have got to see if i can track that one down and then the one 1964 about the autographs I've got to see if I can find that as well. I told you 6,000 articles on Bill Russell just for the decade of the 1960s. That is one of 6,000. It's probably a whole lot because he probably, if he says the response was as bad as he says, it was, it was worse than any of what he had to say about racism. And he wrote this in 79. So he's saying this after he went with all those no count uh, upstart Negras in Cleveland, 1967, no, they didn't call me a nigger in Vietnam and I'm not going to. He's saying it with that as hindsight that nothing was worse than him saying I'm not doing autographs. Whoa. That is in the FBI file. Not he was hanging out with Clay, which I'm sure was a problem. Not that he went to the continent, which I'm sure was a problem, but that this nigger told us no 
Oh yeah. But but the boys aren't. Yep, yep, yep. Gotta do some digging on that one. See if we can find. Uh let's see. Oh my god. For Kyrie Irving. I hope he read second wind. I hope he read second wind. I hope he read second wind. Kyrie Irving. Man, they said the fans took up where the writers left off. A lot of them sent me letters that looked as if they were written by a nasty six-year-old. Pause. Do you remember when we had J. Russell Hawkins on the program earlier this year and he included a whole lot of letters in that book on racism, white supremacy in South Carolina where they couldn't even spell great. Like they misspelled grateful. I know they don't have spell check 60 years ago and what have you, but I mean, woo-wee. You can't even spell nigra, but you know. That's me. He said they wrote in these letters written by a nasty six-year-old. Maybe it was some six-year-olds. Remember, he's scalping and all that. Uh, misspelled words calling me a Jew and a nigra in the same sentence. Come on. Now, see, this is what I mean. Don't you get around here and I got a problem with these Jews. And Are we talking about Bill Russell? What? Wait, wait a minute. What? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> now, it could be. I said it could be the six-year-old because they've heard, you know, mom and dad yelling about Jews and niggers and spicks and everything else. I mean, hey, whatever. It's all niggers is niggers. Anything that's not white, Jew, spick, they were all the same thing to me. And some people behave like that. But I mean, what? Bill Russell is a Jew and a nigger? What? What? Come on, man. The problem is individuals classified as white nothing else let's see get to the this I just think is so amazing I mean for us to talk about white validation as much as we do on this program and have a non-white person victim of racism at the height of their profession like whatever your dreams are about what you can accomplish and the genius that you have and hard work that you can put in to learn a craft and perfect it to achieve that and beyond maybe even what you thought you could achieve in terms of greatness and your personal success to do all of that where white people even want to recognize you for your greatness and the racism and terrorism that you've experienced is so great you know what I'm good <laughs> I don't even I'm good and he gives more to oh what I just said, Kyrie Irving, I hope you are listening, my black brother. I hope you got a few days off before your suspension. Read, say so you have things right there that you can quote when they sit out and call you an anti-Semite and all the rest. They're like, what, uh, what, what, what? Man, let me tell you about Abe Saperstein, white man. Bill Russell about to talk to him. Oh, it gets better as we go. Uh, let's see. We'll go ahead and get to the second audio segment. That way we'll have lots of time to share once that is done. So if you did not get to share, write down like a note or what have you, and we will have plenty of time to hear from you once we get through. Oh, man. And you should have even more to discuss. We talked about the Harlem Globe Trotters before. I've been including their theme song. Sweet Georgia Brown poor Stacey Abrams but I've been including their theme song goes right 
to Abe Saperstein and the Globetrotters right when we get started. Hall of Fame, Catherine Massey Book Club, Context of White Supremacy, William Felton Russell, Second Wind, Audio Segment 2. What it came down to was that I thought of the Hall of Fame in the same way that I thought about autographs and having my number retired. I took fairly consistent stands on all three. In each case, my intention was to separate myself from the star's idea about fans and fans' ideas about stars. I have very little faith in cheers what they mean and how long they will last compared with the faith I have in my own love for the game. The Basketball Hall of Fame is the biggest cheer of all and it means testimonials, dinners, souvenirs, and memories. As an ex-athlete, I don't think that diet is good for me or for my relationship with others. When I was deciding what to do about the Hall of Fame, I'd occasionally catch myself and think, hey, lighten up. You're making too big a deal out of this. Just put the best face on it and let it go. But on top of everything else, I have another gripe against the Hall of Fame. It's jaundiced, I'll admit, but I think it's accurate. When I played basketball, I had the misfortune to associate with a number of the Hall's founders and earliest members before they were turned into stained glass windows and the experience soured me. All of this amounts to a series of personal beefs, I know, and perhaps I should have risen above them in making my decision. But I always said my reasons were personal. One of those beefs grew out of a dispute I had with a man named Mokre, who was the statistician for the Celtics. He and I did not get along. I did a lot of unpleasant chores for Mokre on his word that they were Walter Brown's wishes. Then in a chance conversation one day with Brown, I discovered that he didn't know anything about all these favors. On top of everything else, Mokre had lied to me. Mokre wrote some of the NBA's promotional brochures. One of these listed annually the leading professional and college players, 50 or 60 of them, their statistics, a photograph, and a short biographical sketch. Always included were the NBA All-Star team, the All-Pro players, the statistical leaders, and the team leaders. Except for me, he wouldn't put me in. In 1962, I was named the most valuable player in the NBA and was a member of its championship team, 
yet I was not even mentioned in Mo Cray's Basketball Stars of 1962. This didn't ruin my life, of course. I sulked about it for an hour or two, and then it was over. But since Mo Cray and I saw each other around Celtics' offices fairly often, I would be reminded of him. I wondered how anyone could call himself a professional and censor anybody the way he did. The way I saw it, I would never let our quarrel interfere with the way I played basketball, and he shouldn't let it affect the way he promoted the game. In 1965, Mo was enshrined in the Basketball Hall of Fame. It was one of the major shocks in my sports education. I had known Mo for almost nine years, and in all that time, I thought he never did anything except keep statistics and be a jerk. His selection made me curious about the Hall of Fame and I discovered that he was in good company there. Abe Saperstein, for instance, was a member because of what he had done with the Globetrotters. As I've mentioned earlier, I don't even think the Globetrotters play basketball. They're part of a show. Moreover, for years, when blacks were trying to break into Major League Sports, Saperstein worked against the aspirations of an entire race just to keep his little franchises. Then there was Adolph Rupp. I know many players who had been coached by him at the University of Kentucky. I'd met him myself and nothing I ever saw or heard of him contradicted my impression that he was one of the more devout racists in sports. He was known for the delight he took in making nasty remarks about niggers and Jews and for his determination never to have black players at the University of Kentucky. He held to this until his top-ranked all-white team lost to the 1965 NCAA Finals to an unknown team of blacks from Texas Western. Apart from his racism, I acknowledge that Adolph Rupp did a lot for basketball and perhaps he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, but I did not want to be associated with him or anybody else of his racial views. I saw that as my free choice to make. The Hall of Fame did not descend from heaven on a golden platform. Its rules were not written on clay tablets. Far from it, the Hall of Fame was created in 1959 by a group of white men all born about the turn of the century who decided to declare themselves the Hall of Fame Committee. Rupp was there along with people I personally admire like Walter Brown. They all knew each other. They wrote their own rules to perpetuate themselves and their chosen successors as the controlling powers. 
and by and large they elected themselves and their friends to the Hall of Fame along with some players. The patterns were clear although I had never noticed them. In 1964, the year before he was himself elected, Mokre served as the chairman of the Hall of Fame Selection Committee. I know that an institution has got to start somewhere, but in the long run respect for it will depend on how it is built. If the people who wrote the American Constitution had decided that they would be the members of the first Congress and that each congressman would always appoint his own successor, I doubt that the Constitution would have lasted very long or commanded much respect. A lot of people would have said, hey, they can have that Constitution. They wrote it for themselves, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. That's the way I feel about the Hall of Fame. Aside from racism or my own feelings about the cheers and boos in sports, I don't respect it as an institution. Its standards are not high enough. It's too political, too self-serving. I'm not trying to take it away from the people who run it. They've done well, and I'm sure there are many people who have more instinctive respect for the Basketball Hall of Fame than they have for the U.S. Congress. I'm just saying that the Hall of Fame is separate from me. It's theirs. I think of it about the way I think of the 10 best dressed list. Some people in New York got together and came up with that gimmick and it's become such an institution that I'm sure many people believe it's the final word on fashion. I don't. I think it's just what a few people in New York say. What I said and did about the Hall of Fame was for me. The only possible lesson for anybody else is that some people may accept institutions too readily. They accept authority blindly, without a second look, and when they do, they forfeit their rights and even their opinions to the sign painters in our society. When Walter Cronkite says, that's the way it is, he really should say, that's the way it looks to me and the folks at CBS. Anyway, that's the way it looks to me. Ironically, in spite of my convictions, the Hall of Fame enshrined me. They have one of my old Celtic uniforms in their museum up in Massachusetts worn by a white mannequin. Certainly, my idea of freedom is not saying no to everything. If that were true, I could never have subordinated myself to basketball the way I did. Nor is it to keep people away from me. More important than any game is to touch and to be touched. 
nor is my idea of freedom to be able to do whatever I please whenever I want all my life and particularly in the last 15 years I've tried to develop a personal philosophy built on the belief that I cannot be free until I accept responsibility for what I do until I get to that place I can do all sorts of terrible things to people and to society in general while claiming an excuse that it's not my fault that something else is making it happen many people today who profess to live by freedom spend most of their time trying to impose themselves over the rights and opinions of other people others who profess to live by freedom constantly allow themselves to be imposed on still others say they are religious but spend their time doing mean things to people none of this would go on that way if people could accept responsibility for what they do I have an extreme view of it I guess I alone am responsible for being a good human being my religion is not and neither is my family nor my race nor the institutions around me let's accept the premise that there is some sort of magic in the universe an inspiration for whatever there is and call it a God and God is part of you and you are part of God then how can anybody be mean to the person next to him when they are both part of God how can you say well God created everything but I'm better than you or how can you say well God created everything but he put me here to run it I have never understood that instead I think you look at it all and you say I'm glad I'm part of this free to make myself a place chapter 7 women and blues professional basketball went out of my life in 1969 but it had a lot of company within a few months of my retirement I also left behind my life in Boston and everything that went with it including my wife of 13 years my three children my Boston friends and my material possessions everything in life seemed an encumbrance to me so I made a clean break and took off like a nomad it was a time of excitement mixed with fear every breath I took felt a little frosty I was excited because I was venturing into the outside world after 13 years in a compression chamber fans were about to become people and I was about to become a person instead of a star 
I wanted to read everything I could get my hands on and to poke around in every layer of life. I felt liberated and tingly the way college seniors are supposed to on graduation day. At the same time, I was a little fearful. I sensed that in many ways I was far behind other people who had led more normal lives and with debts to pay. I thought I owed something, but I wasn't sure what it was. After striving for all those years to keep my mind, emotions, and identity independent of basketball, I realized that it had still been an anchor and source of strength. On the court itself, I knew exactly what I was doing. Now that certainty was gone. It would no longer serve to shield me or settle any arguments. In my head, I had known that basketball was not meant to protect me, but I'd never had to live without it. It's one thing to know that you're not really walking if you use crutches. It's quite another to throw them away. In the back of my mind, I feared that anyone as gifted and obsessed as I had been about something like basketball was bound to be retarded elsewhere in his life, maybe everywhere else. As a basketball player, I had thought of myself as an advanced student, a revolutionary, and a champion, so perhaps it was inevitable that I believed myself to be a novice in other aspects of life. If I was ten years ahead of the game, I was at least that far behind with women. Every ounce of me knew that the lights had gone out on my marriage about 1959, but it took until 1969 for me to do something about it. I was always struggling to catch up and making mistakes. My confidence was low, my instincts were bad, and my judgment was even worse. Over the previous ten years, there had been many sweet times and many heartsick ones. I had been consistent only in never quite being on top of my life off the court. After retiring, I was free to start over and concentrate on my personal life to make up for all those years of being behind. This was part of the excitement of starting over fresh. On the other hand, I knew I had a habit of getting in over my head. It was a characteristic that ran all through my past. When I married Rose in 1956, I was 22, fresh from the Olympics, and didn't have the slightest idea what I was doing. I knew only that Rose accepted and cared about me apart from basketball, which was a great breakthrough for me. I loved her 
and I have never since felt that it was a mistake to marry her because it seemed so right at the time. I wasn't trying to force a relationship to work against my better judgment. At the wedding, I had all the feelings you were supposed to have and I wanted to put that emotion into our lives together. Our marriage gave me such a rush of good feeling and romance that I thought I could leave it home like a keepsake and go on about my business. The feeling was so special that I simply assumed it had nothing to do with the rest of my life. It never really occurred to me that marriage and the other parts of one's life went together or that married people should share that life like friends. Friend and wife were mutually exclusive terms to me. I don't know what Rose's attitude was because I never talked to her about it, which is exactly the point. Back in those days, it was acceptable to play Ulysses. You could take off, wander around the world for a few years, and then come home and expect to find things exactly as you had left them. That's what I did. I went off on road trips with the Celtics, visited friends, gave speeches, explored politics, and became involved in civil rights. Later, I went off to Africa for months at a time. Still later, I took off for weeks without knowing where I was going until I got there. When I returned, Rose and I would take up our conversation exactly where we had left it and neither of us would mention the trip. Rose never pried or asked questions, I suspect because she was a little scared of me. If so, we were quite a match. For years, I had two bizarre fears involving her. I was frightened that the time would come when I wouldn't be able to open a jar for her. I didn't know what I'd do if she bought one that I couldn't open. I knew it was a strange fear and sometimes I would laugh at myself about it, but the feeling persisted. My other fear was that Rose would ask me a question I couldn't answer. I could never figure out what would lie on the other side of that moment and I didn't like to think about it because it made me feel fragile. Neither of these fears was ever more than a shadow and they never materialized. Staying away from home so much helped minimize risk. Not surprisingly, I avoided discussing all subjects that interested me, figuring that these were precisely the ones for which I didn't have all the answers. Therefore, Rose and I didn't talk much about what concerned us which did not strike me as unnatural for a number of years. The hurts and antagonisms 
that grew up between Rose and me over the years were minor compared with the limitations we had from the beginning. I myself was one of the main limitations and I drifted away. A large part of me often wanted to think and act like a little boy but I never considered acknowledging this to Rose. Around her I felt a compulsion to be strong and confident. Most of the time I managed to convey these attitudes by force of personality but it was a pose. In fact my whole life seemed to me a pose which I needed to both maintain and destroy at the same time. So piece by piece I disappeared although our formal separation did not occur until 1969. The real move had been made years before. My faithfulness to Rose lasted through my first two seasons in Boston when I was even more shy about temptation than I was with Rose. The other Celtics who were curious about my personal life thought I was square. They were right. When we were on the road I stayed in my hotel room most of the time and at home I'd go down to the basement most nights and play with the electric trains I assembled. Electric trains had been an obsession of mine ever since my boyhood in Louisiana and with my first bit of Celtic money I started building a setup that fulfilled all my fantasies. But trains couldn't hold me forever. I had too much energy and I heard too much from my teammates about how they spent their spare time. One night I simply told Rose I was going out, nothing more was said, and I went out on the town. On that very first occasion I ran into Iodine who turned me every way but loose. I called her Iodine because she was such strong medicine that she could clean all my wounds if I didn't mind the sting. Black with light copper skin and red hair her beauty was striking but what really made people sit up was the way she carried herself. When she walked into a crowded club she was noticed by everyone there within a minute. She came from such a different realm of life that I could not understand her power until I'd spent a lot of time watching her move in her element. She kept gangsters and politicians wrapped around her fingers without ever working at it and on the night I met her she added a young athlete to her string. Having been in the Olympics, NBA championships, and in the press spotlight for several years I thought I knew something about the big time. My rule of thumb was never to show interest in anything or anybody because I know that hustlers work on the greed and desire they see in your face. This tactic had worked fairly well until I ran into iodine. After five minutes at her table I realized that I didn't know anything. 
Iodine was the queen of streetwise, a virtuoso on her subject, as anyone could tell by watching her hold court. She swapped information with relish, completely at ease. People sought her advice on every subject, from fights to marriage to racehorses to business deals. She was always ahead of the game, and you could tell she enjoyed playing. Iodine understood how a big, corrupt city like Boston worked. Everything, that is, that wouldn't appear in the papers or on television, which is most of it. She knew all the pimps, gangsters, whores, union bosses, liquor dealers, fixers, loan sharks, big-time ghetto blacks, fences, and guys in the car theft racket. She also knew how each of them made their accommodations with the police, Irish Poles, wasps, and Italians who mattered. She knew who was up and who was down, who was in trouble and who was on top, who had a future and who did not. She knew all this because people wanted to tell her everything and because she had a genius for reading faces. After a glance at a person, she could tell you his strengths and vices. That night, Iodine introduced me to the people who passed by her table and after each of them left, she would turn to me and give me the lowdown on them. I sat there in amazement, trying to nod my head sagely and putting on a good front with everybody except Iodine. Since I was with the Celtics and with her, nobody tried to mess with me when I was first getting my street legs. In introducing me to black society in Boston, Iodine helped me to understand the first fact of life for a young black man earning thirty or forty thousand dollars in Boston back in the 1950s. That's my economic peer group consisted mostly of pimps and gangsters. That was a necessity. There was no choice in the matter. If I wanted to do anything that required money, most of the people who could pull their own weight with me were gangsters. My only other choices were to pay for everybody and have an entourage which didn't appeal to me or to form horizontal relationships that were unrelated to money which is hard to do anywhere. As it turned out, Iodine became a buffer between me and the black high rollers in Boston. She told me which ones would try to get a hook into me and about those who wouldn't try to capitalize on their friendship. She tried to steer me to what she called the soft core guys, the class gangsters, because she knew I was too straight to be chummy with the ones who had ice in their eyes. In time, 
I learned how to spot the guys who respected privacy, who could laugh and play in their off time and not push it further. I wasn't interested in hearing what they did for a living and by the same token, I didn't want them questioning me about basketball all the time. I found some characters I could get along with and I like to think they'd have been successful in different lines of work. I believe Iodine learned something from me too. At least she said she did. Most of the street people Iodine knew didn't buck the white folks much. They knew that whites would leave them alone if they ran their games in their own neighborhoods and didn't mind taking harassment from the cops every so often. It was a kind of unwritten agreement. As a result, most of the black men didn't have a great deal of self-esteem. They could laugh at the white world or sneak around it, but few of them faced it straight on. In Boston in the late 1950s, the idea that a black man could be successful without either hiding or kissing ass was an obscure one at best. But I was trying to do it and time after time I violated the basic rules of Iodine's world and it both stunned and fascinated her. We studied each other. As awed as I was when she displayed her street knowledge, she'd be equally taken back when I gave no ground to anyone black or white. She never flinched at the worst intimidations of black people but always became upset when I told a white policeman to get out of my face. By Iodine's rules, I often made stupid mistakes even among blacks. I was stupid but I was also tough which is the worst possible combination. It leads to a great deal of aggravation and that's exactly what I found. We nursed each other along and became a couple in no time. But though we learned a lot, the basis of our relationship was never education or pre-civil rights ghetto sociology. Our relationship was never equal. She could turn me inside out and upside down. She taught me about passion. She was so good to me that sometimes when I was making love with her, the tears would roll down my cheeks. That was the medicine, the sting that might come any time. Sometimes in bed at night, it felt as if all my nerves had unplugged from my brain and I'd be way out there where no words or familiar thoughts exist when suddenly a scream would shatter me. Stop it, she'd yell. Stop it, goddammit. As big as I am, she'd throw me across the bed. I'd be somewhere between Jupiter and Mars and it would be all I could do to ask weakly, what's the matter?
iodine would shrug her shoulders and say oh you were just having too much fun and the next thing i'd know she'd be swishing out the door leaving me there on the bed with about as much vitality as a pile of chicken bones this was only one of her little ways to keep me in line as she called it she had hundreds of them which she'd spring on me when i least expected them normally iodine was cool full of subtle smiles and gestures and I could almost see her mind working, but when I was least expecting it, Jekyll would vanish and Hyde would take over. She'd pitch a fit of some kind, then shake the dust off her feet and take off. As an animal, she'd have been a Mustang. As a food, she'd have been one of those hot chili peppers. Context of white supremacy got disrupted ready to roll end of our second audio segment we have I think it'll be two I thought we would be done next week but might have to be two because there's a little bit more text than I originally assessed anywho the number again six one five three one three five one six four the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate email until justice at gmail dot com uh let's see I'll try and get some of the commentary let's see uh one of our investors he wrote in uh chapter six page one ninety seven to one ninety eight twenty year old ordeal autographs quit smoking in the same way uh, my decision seemed to offend more people in Boston than anything I'd ever said about racism who do you think you are the autograph business they called me uppity Mr. Russell talks about freedom I think much of what he talks about as freedom could be characterized as codified behavior analyzing each of your potential actions and trying to determine what would be the most constructive result number two page 200 I've noticed how often people are irritated when somebody else practices freedom 1959 the NBA owners met to vote on a rule banning facial hair on the court I have noticed that white people can be irritated when I try to practice codification for sure number three page 201 Bill Walton comments about J Edgar Hoover and the FBI am I correct that at least at the time of this book he was not aware that he was also under surveillance by the FBI I don't think he would have known at 79 like his name was in the files and what have you like I don't think that information came out specifically until later on I think it had only been like 1972 1971 uh, when they had the break-in in the media Pennsylvania office and some of the information started to come out and I mean most people still don't know so I, I, I seriously doubt that he was that informed at 1979 when this book was published number four page 202 to 203 uh, red wanted to hang my shirt Boston at the Boston Garden I kept my retirement a secret uh, the ABC telecast uh, for the Celtics in March of 72 uh, agreed to the ceremony without a single fan present. I think another example of codification uh, by Mr. Russell. Maybe other victims of racism, white supremacy should have a similar approach to these awards, Oscars, Emmys, etc. Number five, 
page two or three, I try to avoid intimidation, uh, compulsion to be my own man. I haven't always been the rock of Gibraltar. My golf buddy wanted tickets uh, for the playoff series. I uh, can't blame it all on the sweat at the ticket office, us losing the series. I uh, blame myself for being a chump. Mr. Ruffle, Mr. Russell exhibits a lot of black self-respect by just being honest with himself. We are all still learning for sure. Number six, page 205 to 206. Mr. Russell opened a Boston restaurant uh, in the 60s. The fire inspectors uh, waiting for a payoff policemen uh, giving the customers parking tickets. Uh, somebody was picking me clean, the bartenders and cashiers. I was losing money. My restaurant put the restaurant up for sale. An example of the difficulties of being an entrepreneur for non-white victims in the global system of white supremacy. Number seven, page 207. Inflation seems to me a form of corruption. Pushers in the slums, pushers in the suburbs. Uh, Watts for the riot in 1965. By 1970, the National Guard was killing white students at Kent State. Uh, the Allende government in Chile, Nixon and Dr. Henry Kissinger uh, attacking communism in Chile. Uh, they would be better off with a right wing dictatorship than a left wing democracy. Uh, Ball of Confusion, song 1970 by the Tempting Temptations. Number eight, 208 average. The average television show has the mentality of a 12 year old. Uh, the average reading level of current adults in the U.S. is seventh eighth grade or age 12 to 14. I said that some people are probably saying that about, you know, right now, or it's been that way for some time. Page nine, two oh, or number nine, page 208. Even today, today, most whites write about blacks. Uh, it has an undercurrent of child rearing parent. They intentionally keep us in a childlike state for sure. Number 10, page 210 to 213, the basketball hall of fame. Uh, first members were in 1959. I simply did not want to be a part of it. Sports writers jumped on me. Fans took it up, calling me a Jew and a nigger. I wonder what would happen if more non-white victims did not participate in these awards. I think white we, white people would be pissed. You saw that they were upset about his conduct. Um, yeah, I think Terrell Owens might have done this as well, but I'd have to go back and double check where he did not go to his ceremony for the Hall of Fame. Number 11, page 213, my idea of freedom is not to say no to everything. The only, only the most productive result. Another example of codified thinking. Uh, moving on to chapter 7. Number 1, page 218, my faithfulness in Rose lasted the first two seasons. The whole section of his first wife made me a little sad for her. Yeah, I think it would have to be kind of a lonely life. He's famous and going everywhere and you're just stuck here and rearing children and no count Boston where they're coming and breaking in the Oh Yeah, that would be kind of lame. Number two, page 218. I called her iodine, light copper skin. Page 223, iodine made me believe things I didn't want to do, say things I didn't want to say, go places I didn't want to go. Uh, an example of colorism, perhaps a definition favoring lighter skin over darker skin. Could be. Mr. Russell was a darker complected, more melanated black male. Uh, let's see, page 219, blacks in Boston society, pimps and gangsters. Uh, most street people, uh, black male uh, to be successful meant kissing ass, uh, made stupid mistakes. I was stupid. Also tough, worst possible combination in the minds of the victim of, excuse me, in the minds of the white supremacists, all non-white victims are equal. All non-white victims are required by the white supremacists to kiss ass in the global system of racism, white supremacy. Uh, boom, and that's as far as we got. Uh, let's see. Folks who dialed in uh, on the phone line, star six one, if you have commentary, uh, retired firefighter, 
Lauren should be with us. Uh, did you have commentary on part two? May I be heard? That would be Lauren. Yes, ma'am. It is. Um, I had something to say about part one that I didn't say. Um, when he was talking about the autographs and he, uh, someone said, you have to sign autographs. That's the price you pay for being in the public eye. I wouldn't reply because I don't like hostile conversations. In the autograph business, either the fans are prostrate and the stars are high-end, high and mighty, sorry, or vice versa. There's no such thing as an even kill, which is why the whole exchange is phony. Um, number one, I like that he said he wouldn't respond. I think uh, not enough people, not enough non-white people really utilize that silence as a response. And it, it's a lot better than saying something when you don't have time to think about the situation. That's what I think anyway. Um, we do a lot of talking without thinking about what it is that we're going to say first and what that might lead to. So I appreciate that he said he was silent um, because he doesn't like hostile conversation. And also, that's another way to reduce conflict. And when he was talking about, you know, uh, stars being high and mighty and the fans being prostrate, um, the power imbalance, it, it made me think about why sex between white people and non-white people is incorrect. Um, you know, the power imbalance, one person has power, the other one doesn't, it's, it's not even. Um, and that's the incorrect thing, the imbalance. So I wanted to say that. And on part two, when he was talking about Rose, I've actually been, it's been a couple of things in the book. It, it surprised me that he would say it, you know, out loud, tell another person. I thought when he talked about his mother when he was younger and how sad he was, um, that revealed a lot and it was really personal and when he got older the way he was angry with his mom for dying and he said he would make a joke that um he'd say he'd have to die before he let you down or something like that it was kind of at the beginning of the book and he made that joke and, and he talked about it and I thought wow you know that was really it took courage to say it. And when he was talking about Rose, his wife, he was saying he had those two fears. I'm trying to, it, on page 217, it said, Rose never pried or asked questions. I suspect because she was a little scared of me. For years, I had two bizarre fears involving her. I was frightened that the time would come when I wouldn't be able to open a jar for her. I didn't know what I'd do if she bought one that I couldn't open. Um, and also, he said his other fear was that she would ask a question that he couldn't answer. And, you know, that he was really revealing a lot about himself. And in a way, I mean, it seems silly, but it was kind of sweet. 
he just wanted to be needed to know that he was useful to this person. And yeah, I, you know, I just thought it was interesting that he revealed some of these things that he did. Um, and iodine, I don't, I don't know. Iodine is kind of dark in color. So I don't know if that lady was light skinned. I think it uh, described her as, hmm, it said light copper skin. Pennies are made of copper. That's that's brown. I, I don't know. I don't really think of that as light skin for a black person. That is a, my opinion. And that's all I have for right now. That skin color thing can get super subjective. My goodness. We're, uh, wowee. It is amazing to see what people think light copper, even with that alone, just giving people to tell you what they think light copper <laughs> what qualifies as light copper complexion yikes uh let's see retired firefighter did you have commentary much obliged lauren uh yeah uh the only thing that i uh have to say uh because he talked about uh his uh what i believe was his first marriage and that sort of thing uh you know, under the global system of racist white supremacy, uh, uh, non-white people, black male, black females, uh, very difficult to uh, uh, to keep uh, a uh, maritable relationship uh, under the global system of racist white supremacy. Uh, that's why Mr. Fuller, Mr. Fuller suggests to uh, uh, ask questions uh before the two become even emotionally or physically attached to one another uh and then you know the whole idea of a one of the two uh or 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 a becomes a professional entertainer in this case an athlete uh makes it compounding difficult very difficult uh for that to take place all of the different things that take place uh under that uh task and i was just thinking about the picture the famous picture that he was involved in with the situation about mr ali <laughs> i think probably probably uh out of all of those people black males that was in that picture uh that were married they ended up marrying probably i think the the guest that was on your program probably is the, uh, the only one that is still married to the same person <laughs> that he uh, ended up marrying to, uh, from my understanding. Uh, I'm trying to think, maybe, I don't know, maybe the professional politician that also was there, but uh, definitely most of them did not stay married to the person that they married first. And, uh, and probably you know, never did have a success at that venture in life. And that's all I have to say. Thank you. Walter Beach, the third two-time guest here at the context of white supremacy. He even talked about his uh, offspring and what have you. Uh, let's see. Uh, get to some of my notes. I'll keep an eye on the switchboard. I don't think I missed anybody on the emails but I'll double check uh, the inflation calculator people can keep that in mind as we proceed uh, where he talked about 
uh, in terms of finding other people to hang out with and to see if you can find someone who is making around $30,000, $40,000 per year, that it would be tough to find a black person in Boston circa 1960 who is making around that much money with the inflation calculator. So 1960, $35,000, that would be $352,379 per year, 2022 money. So I would stay still today. It would probably be pretty challenging to find a black person in Boston who makes $352,000 per year. Yes, you would probably still be kind of limited to the black people that you can hang out with. Let's see. Uh, Notes. Even going back to the section from before, I think Lauren, she mentioned that quote from Mahatma Gandhi, where he said something like, it's not my main aim to be consistent with what I have said, but to be consistent with what the truth with the truth as it reveals itself to me. That one I thought as well in, as she said it eloquently, being able to re-examine because things do change situations. You may have had things accurately before, but you might have to reassess and, whoa, things have changed. So now I have to reevaluate and, you know, we have to reconfigure as opposed to just doing what we've always done, thinking what we've always thought, always updating our thinking because times and information does change, require updates. Also appreciated, he didn't say, uh, but to be consistent with my truth as it reveals itself, he said to be consistent with the truth, which again, I say is important because there's so much of just making everything subjective. And no, I don't think everything is subjective, especially if we're talking about the system of white supremacy racism. Uh, let's see. Next, that was from first section. Second section, uh, he says that inflation is a form of corruption. Are you serious? That's what they're, you know, everyone is hopping mad about. They've been talking about with the midterms and all of this and these price increases and even allegations that there might be some shenanigans uh, being carried out to artificially increase prices so that white entrepreneurs and tycoons can milk us for funding and blame it on the Rona and you know, whatever else. Uh, let's see. He says so many people go to work gritting their teeth and blah, blah, blah. We've had that for the last three years, gritting their teeth with no PPE or anything else. Uh, let's see. When I was young, we had the pushers. Oh, the Ross right. We got that Jackson state just mentioned that the other day. Uh, Oh my goodness, the Hall of Fame portion. Okay, man, oh man. This is one part where I can't say, I think I, or I hope, yes I did, I said it before. If you have offspring, especially black males, if they are younger, when I say younger, I'll say uh, teens, 20s, anywhere uh, in that age range. So athletics, sports are still very important to them. They play basketball they watch oops, excuse me they play they watch basketball that's you know something that they think deserves a good bit of their time and energy 
have them read some of these books. Like I said, if they watch NBA basketball and they're seeing all this about uh, Bill Russell right now, have them read Second Wind. Like this is not one of those books we talk about the ISIS papers and some of the other books that uh, might be challenging. Lots of constructive information. The Man Not, Urugu. Uh, I'm not saying anything bad about these in my top 10. We read these books way before we even got to Second Wind. But I do acknowledge that we do have some people because of racist white supremacist school system Bill Russell talks about busing and all the rest of it you have many non-white students who have horrible experience in the classroom Ruby Bridges Louisiana uh, and so they you know have not had a great time at the library Bill Russell talked about that and so it can be hard to read some books I don't think this is a tough book to read man you would have such a better perspective because I didn't know all this about the Harlem Globetrotters and the University of Kentucky, they still play at Rupp Arena, R-U-P-P. Go Wildcats, Lexington. I went to the University of Kentucky, not as a student, but I mean, just to go check out the uh, campus and everything when I was, you know, that age going around to do. No idea. When he talks about uh, Adolph Rupp and his dedication to white supremacy, racism, and him kind of bragging about keeping black players out of the University of Kentucky uh, until they lost uh, to this squad of black players like that is a really Texas Western like that is a really important moment uh, in college basketball 1965 the year Malcolm X's assassination a really important moment and the Marshawn Selma but a really important moment uh, in college basketball probably U.S. history Uh, they have whole books written about that tournament and that game specifically uh, might be worth checking out but I mean Adolph Rupp is still glorified in basketball especially if you watch uh, college basketball like I just said the arena is still Rupp Arena and they do have a number of reports where within the last two or three years where there have been questions hmm this guy uh, hmm this guy Rupp might be a might be a racist. Old, old Bill Russell did say he was one of the reasons he didn't even want to be in the Hall of Fame. Like, maybe we shouldn't call it Rupp Arena now. It's almost 2025 and it still is Rupp Arena. I'm all for keep it that way until this system is replaced. Not beforehand, but yeah, that is dedication. How many of these arenas and what have you are named after race soldiers? Even I love how he didn't even dignify by giving us the full name. He just Mocray. Mocray. He didn't even William Mocray. No, 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 not even giving your full name. You're just going to be Mocray. Who is this? I even had to look because I had never heard of this guy before. They, they even said that he had bad eyesight. Couldn't play basketball because His vision was so poor, but he loves basketball. This guy is credited with being uh, like one of the uh, first collectors to have like a huge library of material books and catalogs and things on basketball players. Now, I mean, (laughs) that right there is even some necrophilia, like you're sitting around and collecting all these images of Wilt Chamberlain and all these athletes at the time, even though it was a lot more white players still. And then he says, he says flipping, 
uh, Mokre, this guy, he says, uh, in 1962, I was named most valuable player in the NBA and was a member of his championship team, and I was not even mentioned in Mokre's basketball stars. And then he says that he's messing around and he and I didn't get along. I did a lot of unpleasant chores for Mokre on his word that they were Walter Brown's wishes. Then in a chance conversation one day with Brown, I discovered that he didn't know anything about these favors on top of everything else. Mokre had lied to me. That's one. What were the unpleasant chores? is so vague in a book where he you know is so descriptive where he'll take you know several paragraphs sometimes right to give us to talk about the citadel and other incidents like what were the unpleasant chores that he lied to bill russell about to get him to do and say oh yeah the owner you know wants you to do this and do this and do this and do this and then you go talk to him and find out like what i don't what are you talking about bill i don't know anything about that come on man Come on, and that is so common in workplace settings where you will have a coworker who will lie to you, a racist coworker, and say, "Oh yeah, you know such and such. They said, you know, do this and do that and do this." What were the? I mean, that's so vague, like unpleasant chores, like mop the toilet, mop the bat. Like, what could he have asked you to do? Chore, and it's plural. Like, it wasn't just one thing, but. What did he want you to do? I'm not even thinking Donald Sterling, right? My mind is not, you know, uh, delectable Negro. Maybe it should be, but what did he want you to do? Unpleasant. That's such a vague phrasing. For a guy I've never even heard of. This is the first time. I mean, I'm somebody I'm with retired firefighter. I've wasted a lot of time watching white ball games. I've never even heard this guy mentioned. They don't have William Mokray night <laughs> in ball or do they? If they do, I've never heard of it. Like what? Who is this dude? And then on top of all that, you work for the Celtics and Bill Russell wins MVP and you put out the, the catalog for the NBA and Bill Russell is totally omitted. That's like they put out the catalog this year in the NBA and Steph Curry is not there at all. Like, wait a minute. Didn't they win the championship? <laughs> didn't he win the finals MVP and he's not in here at all and you work for the Golden State Warriors and you be going Whoa. like shouldn't you get revoked like if you can do things if they can go and take back Bill Cosby's honorary degree and all that can you revoke somebody being in the Hall of Fame like we found out what you did to Bill Russell and no now you're gone no more Mo Cray you're out of here let's see Adolf, I got to get information on Adolf Rupp, like to brag about, because he said he bragged. Mr. Fuller said to brag. Brianna Taylor, Adolf Rupp, we brag about keeping niggers out. Bluegrass State for sure. Let's see. I didn't know any of this about the foundation of the Hall of Fame. That's another one. If you knew more about any, the Hall of Fame has changed a lot. That is one thing that I'll say, like, Wow, the Hall of Fame now, I think if you think about it, people, it would be like Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Michael Jordan. I think if you just ask like random basketball fan, like name the first 10 players that you think are in Kobe Bryant, <laughs> like that's who they would be naming. Like, I don't think it would be William Mocray or Jerry West even. I mean, he is in the Hall of Fame, but I mean, pff, you pick anybody, average fan, 
50 years and under. Average age could be whatever, 45, 35, 20. I don't think they're going to be saying William Mokray. I think it's Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan. That's who they'll be, you know, Tracy McGrady. Uh, Bill Russell now with all this attention for this year. Uh, let's see. But I love is that it's so logical, it's so coded, it's so based in black self-respect. Like, oh my God, this is the... I love this book so much. I just feel like it gets better as we go. Um, but to just to root all of this in, nah, I'm not excited. I'm not jumping up and down about it. Even it reminds me of Dr. Maya Angelou, where she said, when people say, oh, you know, Angelou, you're the greatest writer ever. And eh. she says, I don't pick that up because if I pick that up, then when they come back and say, oh, you lost it. You're lame now. You don't know what you're talking about. You used to be a great writer, but you're not now. Uh, she said, well, see, I don't pick either of them up. That way I don't pick up the booze. I don't pick up the cheers. That way I can pass on all of it. Bill Russell seems to have the exact same thought process that I'm not going to be jumping up and down for any sort of white validation, uh, regardless of whether they think I'm the best basketball player who has ever lived uh, or, you know, you used to be that guy, but you lost it. You know, you're you're old and lame, and you don't sign autographs anymore either. So you are now extra super special lame and uppity nigra jew uh let's see hall of fame is separate i love it i love it uh let's see on top of all that i will though say that i am glad that they do have lots of video and archival footage of him way later like within the last two or three years at the Hall of Fame, like I said, with all black people, Jakembe Matumbo and Shaquille O'Neal and all of these black, I mean, it's just tons of us. The Hall of Fame is way different. Like, it is amazing. Uh, I mean, we're still in a system of white supremacy and almost everything that he said, it absolutely still applies. System of white supremacy first and foremost, for sure. But man, it has been a half century and I mean, wow, the Hall of Fame basketball, it is a lot of black people there now like man uh even though that has not helped us solve the problem let's see uh oh i love the last paragraph religion and white supremacy he says how can anybody be mean to the person next to him when they are both part of god how can you say well god created everything but i'm better than you religion and white supremacy or say well god created everything but he put me here to run it religion of what that's them through and through and I, Mr. Fuller says I've heard white people say that we put us in charge keep you blue gum monkeys in line uh, let's see chapter 7 he said he thought that he might have been behind people who had more normal lives I don't know what that means that word normal is one I would say to be cautious about maybe ask questions when people mention someone as normal or normal human experience uh, he has a lot of biblical metaphors right he had the rock of Gibraltar and a few other parts in there but also uh, here he says back in those days it was acceptable to play Ulysses talking about leaving Rose behind and going off on his swashbuckling adventures to Africa and other places uh, and I just thought that was a significant metaphor because hey program just yesterday I mentioned Oedipus Rex all of this Greco-Roman mythology that is just part and parcel of white culture uh, and all of that right there with the Iliad and all of that you see a lot of the same sexual perversion uh, and what have you and having sex with your mom and uh, homo anti-sex uh, and all of that you see a lot of the same thing right in the stories but we 
have to learn this before white people. Oh, he's intelligent. He's learned. all of us. I got it. That's how I know Oedipus Rex. You got to read this. You got to study this. You want to go to school, don't you? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. You want that diploma from the University of San Francisco, don't you? Mm-hmm. Let's see. About the question, I think that's so many of us. I appreciate the human, the frailty part, because I think that's so many of us afraid to not know. Mr. Fuller has talked about that, afraid to not know. Get caught out there someplace and not know. Be robust about it, because what? Well, we already said we are still learning. I don't know. Let's see if we can find out. Learning, learning. Of course, I don't know everything. Well, I mean, come on. That's how racists trick a lot of us. Oh, you don't know that? Oh, of course. Of course. I'm still. Let's learn it together. Then we'll both know. Let's see. Anything else? He says, uh, oh, yeah. Last two. He says. The Adan. Iodine. I'm saying it Iodine. They have multiple pronunciations for that one. And I'm saying Iodine just to move it off of the medicine pronunciation. Uh, but he says Iodine, uh, that she knew each of them, how made, how these gangsters and people made their connections, accommodations. That's the word accommodations with the police, Irish Poles, wasps and Italians who mattered. Oh, I love it. She didn't say black lives matter. Black Bostonians matter. All these people that she's talking about right here that matter, the Wasp, the Irish Poles, McCluskey, Godfather, Italians, these individuals classified as white. They matter and you had better make accommodations with them. She didn't say that they would go do the baseball bat thing with them. These folks matter. You better get your business right if you want to, you know, do whatever little side hustle you're going to do here in the Negro part of Boston. Uh, let's see. She said, this is probably true right now. I told you thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 now would be a little less than $400,000. Most black people don't make even half of that right now. I don't even think many pimps and gangsters, black people make that now. Let's see. And white people are the reason that the only black people who make that sort of money are doing some sort of criminal activity. Uh, let's see. He said that Iodine, she tried to steer him to what she called the soft core guys. I just think the metaphors, because he said before that it was difficult to see a black person with self-esteem uh, who wasn't about laughing, hiding and kissing ass. That was the metaphor. I'm just paying attention to how many of these sexualized metaphors are used. Soft core. That's normally a phrase that's used for some sort of pornographic material that is not quite as intense aggressive as the normal triple x pornography so i don't know i mean maybe you don't have to do as much sexual activity they're not as heavily involved but i just find that fascinating that you have as many of these uh sexual metaphors and biblical metaphors being incorporated in the text here uh which would fit with the requirements uh in terms of what you might be required to do if you have to do favors <laughs> he couldn't even mention that even reminds me of Delectable Negro, where he talked about sometimes the abuses in the system of white supremacy. They can't even be mentioned. That's the second time this week I mentioned it, specifically with Delectable Negro, where I said, hey, they cut off an ear and we will shoot back where, hey, sometimes that is code for they cut off a penis. What were those unenjoyable favors? Anyway, uh, do, do, do. anything else need to get out before? Nah can pick up the rest of it next week i'll see if i can find that report where they talk about the hair rules as well 
as the autographs uh, from the 1960s. Much obliged for folks tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. We'll be here tomorrow and Saturday, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific for both uh, all the time, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. But we'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, Much obliged for everyone who tuned in. Sobriety would be best. Even heard a little teaspoon of that today. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no throw away non-white children minimize conflict with other victims of racism cow signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>